Uh, <clears throat> did everyone get a little worksheet? Think so? I, I thought, you know what, I was waiting for you to sit down, and I tried to give you one. Here you go. Thank you. Okay. Uh, now, last time I was here, we did a James class, and I find it difficult. Say again? Oh, oh, okay, great. Well, you got one. Okay, well, I, discussion is totally open in this room. I, I, I like discussion. Anyway, uh, and so I thought I'll carry on with the theme. You know, James is, uh, for the right reasons, called the epistle of common sense. And it is. And so I think it's a good thing for us to look at a little bit more. And so as you can see on your sheet there, we're going to look at James 3. Uh, just for another class here. And, um, you know, uh, we're going to go through these verses together. But uh, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, but so is a lot, according to Albert Einstein. Uh, you know, knowledge is, you know, it's called knowledge is power. Uh, knowledge is something that very few seem to truly attain, but yet our uh, society is gaining knowledge at such a an incredibly accelerated rate today than what it was 25 to 50 years ago. Here are some numbers that I've found. Uh, leading up to the 1900s, knowledge was said to only double, as in like you, uh, the culture gains more of it, uh, every century leading up to the 1900s. But as soon as it hit World War II, it was said that knowledge or the access to it doubled every 25 years. Leading up to 1970, knowledge was beginning to become more accessible. Every 10 years, there would be a major advancement in technology. Uh, and understanding how the world you know, is easier to live with and more conveniences and this kind of things. Uh, as of 2017, knowledge is now at a rate of about 13 months of gaining new technology. And you know this, even inside of uh, you know, like the medical field. You know, 10 years ago, things that are now easily accessible, you couldn't even fathom that they could do it right now, you know, and think about 20 years ago and 30 years ago, so, uh, you know, things with computers, you know, I think uh, y'all got a phone in your pocket, uh, you know, that wasn't even a real thing as of, you know, 20 years ago, you would have had that, so obviously we see technology and knowledge is constantly moving forward at a very, very accelerated pace, and it's said that other things like nanotechnology is doubling every two years, Clinical knowledge every 18 months. And what's interesting about all this is that your brain has the ability to store all of this within it. And that shows us that God has given us the greatest computer of our minds that we have to use very wisely. Now, according to a neuroscientist who mapped the brain, Jeff Lynchman, he said that several billion petatypes of data storage is needed. The internet is said to have 
five million terabytes. Google has zero as point zero zero four of this. So that means that the internet has a lot of room to grow when it comes to accessing knowledge. But what's interesting is that um, that the knowledge in your Bible far exceeds what the culture and technology has brought up to this point. You know, the Bible, because God is the author, was way ahead in the fields of science. Uh, you know, you read in Job about the paths in the water, about the dinosaurs living with people. Uh, you read about, in Leviticus, how life is in the blood. See, all this, all these things have been around, uh, ever since the Bible's been around, and yet, our secular side of culture is now starting to acknowledge those God-given facts. And so, knowledge, though, is available to us in many, many facets. And it's, it's very outstanding at just how wonderful it is that you can know things now. You know, you can have answers. And the Bible gives us the real answers to things that our country and our culture is still trying to figure out. And so, I want us today to look at James 3, 13 through 18. And uh, on your sheet, you have it dealing with the word wisdom. Is it above or below? And so, let's look at James 3, verse 13. And uh, someone want to read that for us? James 3, verse 13. Alright, so, when you look at this, uh, this very question, the first question on your little sheet here is, with what is knowledge commonly associated? Um, what do you think the answer to that question would be? With what do you think is, is knowledge commonly associated? If someone is a doctor... They have had to possess two things normally. That would be a reasonable intellect and studying. Uh, no one would want to have a guy that just got off the street and do neuroscience on your brain. Uh, you know, same thing with preachers and lawyers and other things of this sort. Uh, you don't want to have someone who's just a greenhorn the entire time, right? You want to have someone that has a reasonable amount of intellect and the ability to study, as you've done for your job, uh, and how you succeeded in your job. You had to have a reasonable amount of intellect, and you had to study a little bit to get where you wanted to go, right? So, knowledge is commonly associated with studying and intellect. Now, as James saying, according to verse 13, that knowledge and learning is bad. Is it all bad? No. Okay, is some of it bad? Sure. All right, so when you look at verse 13, he's referring to the moral insight and skill of putting that knowledge into everyday use. Now, here's a question. How is that done according to uh, James 3, verse 13? 
I got a worksheet. Ron, there you go. All right. How is knowledge put into practice according to James 3.13? By good conduct. Okay. Right, right. So good conduct, the way you speak and talk and what else? Anything else from that verse you see? Yeah. Yeah, what you're doing. So everything that you do is all about practical living. That's, again, the, this is the letter of practicality, practical Christianity. It's the book of James. And so he's trying to show us that this moral insight deals with, obviously, your behavior, your speech, what you do. It's your whole being, right? And so you're beginning to notice that from verse 13 here. Now, let's look at verse 14. Someone want to read that for us? James 3, 14. All right. Now, uh, when you look at what's going on here, you know, you now have been presented with that very good standard, that five-letter word of truth in the verse. And so all of this is revolving around truth. Now, what's interesting here about this, uh, this idea of wisdom is according to Isaiah 55, verse number 8, it says, God says of himself that, you know, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways. Uh, you know, but he still says you still can trust me. In Proverbs 3, verses 4 and 5, the Bible says, lean not on your what? Do you remember? That's right, on your own understanding. So, there are some things, though, that we may not understand how God works. This is dealing with how we can understand how we work in the framework of what God has put in place for us in Scripture. How we can live life as a Christian in light of the Scripture. And so, when you look at verse number 14, though, it has an interesting uh, two sections here. How, notice the conditions here. If you have bitter envy and are self-seeking in your hearts. Do not boast and lie against the truth. Now, what is that verse talking about? What's verse, what's verse 14 talking about? Any thoughts? False teachers? False teachers? Absolutely. What else? He has something else. Yeah. 
Right, right. Uh, and, and this, and James is trying to show us. He's trying to kind of put on a chart here. You know, you have the good and the bad. He's saying this is the bad side. This is the side that's the secular side. This is the side that's self-seeking. This is the side that's proud, arrogant. This is the. This would be the guy that would go out and say, you know, he knows more than God. He is self-sufficient. He has all the answers. That's this guy. This self-seeking, bitter, envious individual. He's doing it to be puffed up. But, according to 1 Corinthians 13, he's not doing it out of love because why? Love is not boastful, puffed up. So he's not doing it out of love for his fellow man as he should. He's doing it out of love for who? Itself. Right. You see it in the verse. Self-seeking and bitter envy. Now, you know, I, it's interesting that he uses the word bitter as an adjective to describe envy. Why would he use that? To, I mean, isn't envy already bad enough? Why would he put bitter envy? Any thoughts? Yeah. 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 You know? Uh, you know, and we, uh, and that's, you know, and that's kind of what happens, isn't it? You know people that have done that. You know, they, they go into other areas that they shouldn't be going into, and they try to be more, you know, philosophy-oriented. This is what the world says is the right thing, and, uh, you know, and it goes inward, begins to consume them. So it's interesting that he's using that already. He's saying, this is bitter. This stuff's going to eat you alive. And mention one more to go. This is false teaching as well. Most definitely. Uh, that's Philippians 3, uh, verses 1 and 2 there. But when you look at why is this wrong? What is it against? According to the verse. It's against the... Truth, yeah. So the truth, obviously, is against that. So the truth, therefore, is not envious. The truth is not about self-seeking. The truth is not about how much I know and how little you know. Nothing about that at all. This is, again, where James is trying to set us up for telling us what heavenly wisdom looks like. He'll do that in a minute, okay? He's trying to give us the framework, the the foundation upon which we can look at this thing and see why we should strive to obviously be humble people, be honest Christians, and to be Christians, in fact. Now, verse uh, 15 here. Someone want to read that for us? Now, this wisdom is going back to verse 14, but someone want to look at that for us? James 3, verse 15. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Yeah. And he's just describing what you see there in verse 14. That's all he's doing. Now, when you look at uh, verse 16 then, 
So obviously, is this wisdom desired according to the question? What will the answer be? Does anyone think yes? Is this is the wisdom that is not from above desired? Yes or no? No. <laughs> if we add yes, I'll be very worried right now. Uh, okay. Now, verse 16. Uh, look at this. For where envy and self-seeking exist, what also is there? Confusion and every evil thing are there. That's interesting. Now, you know, Romans one twenty two says that the wise became fools. And so this very verse is again trying to just explain to us how certain things in the world are not where, you, where we should be at in, in the mentality of things. That we should not be looking for things that are self-gratifying, that are earthly, that are sensual and that are demonic. That's the interesting word demonic there. He uses that word. James uses the word twice in his, in his epistle. This time, and in the previous chapter, uh, in verse number 19, where he uses the word demons. But even the demons believe and they tremble. Um, and so the demons here are talking about, uh, you know, even everything against God. Uh, even though they may acknowledge God, they're still evil, demonic. That's why he says, everything right here is confusing. And it's interesting here that when you look at uh, the secular world, there's a lot of conflicting ideas on everything. Everything is conflicting. But the Bible is always true. It's always in harmony. You know, 1 Corinthians 14, 33 says God is not the author of confusion. The word of God is simple. Psalm 19, verse 6 and 7. It makes wise the simple. And so we notice that the Bible is, it, it is cohesive. It makes sense. There is nothing to worry about when you look at your Bible. And so you look at the wisdom from above here now in the next verse, in verse number 17. Now, someone read that for us? James 3, verse 17. So we've seen the bad side, uh, which I think is pretty bad. But now let's at the good side of wisdom. Someone want to read that for us? James 3, verse 17. Okay, so what are the characteristics of heavenly wisdom that you see in the verse? Obviously, you see it's what? Number one, it's pure. What else? Which one? <laughs> what, what was it? Good? Okay. Yeah. Today is the most confusing place on 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, and, and if you look at, at what's going on here, you know, going on with that, you know, our world is chaotic. But yet, it says this wisdom is what? Pure, peaceable, it makes for peace, gentle, willing to yield or entreat, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Now, if you were to be a mathematician, how many things are mentioned here? It's one of those good numbers you see in the Bible. Now, there are several good numbers. Yeah, seven. Seven. How interesting. Now, seven... Uh, you know why that number is so special? Obviously, we normally go to creation for that number. And we say, see, the seventh day is when God rests. That's when everything was complete. Everything was where it should be. And so seven is one of those divine numbers. Uh, you know, seven has always been around the Scripture. And it's always been a number associated with a universal uh, number. You know, how many churches were there in, were there in Asia in Revelation 2 and 3? Seven. Uh, and so, these seven qualities or characteristics of wisdom here is showing a universal goodness, a universal full package. This is what it looks like. Everything's covered. Mentioned. Everything's here. Don't got to go anywhere else. Now, I want us to look at a little bit more of these, in, more in detail for a few minutes, but we have time, uh, to kind of just show us why it is pure. Now, how is this pure? How is this wisdom from above first pure? Yeah, because of who God is. God is pure. Habakkuk 2 says he cannot look upon anything that's sinful. It's because of how pure God is. In 1 John 3, verse 3, And every man that hath this hope in himself purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Now, you know, sometimes uh, we struggle with purity of life and mind. Because of how dirty sin is. Sin has always been dirty business. It takes away from God, condemns your soul. Sin is what will put you into so much chaos and marriage, relationships, uh, community, even eternal, you know, even, even in life of eternity, sin is dirty business. But when you look at Purity here. We notice then that we're striving to not be defiled. Now, there were some who were religious. Matthew 23, verse number 2 here. says the Pharisees were religious, but yet it says that they were, it would seem to be clean on the outside, but they were what? Do you remember what Christ said of them? They were like a whitewashed tomb full of what? How? 
<laughs> what kind of imagery is that? Dead man's bones in a whitewashed tomb. Now, these guys thought that they were pure, right? But they were religious. And so being religious does not mean that you're automatically of pure mind and pure, uh, pure life. But we know 1 John 1, 7 says, as a Christian, we have that sweet fellowship with God that when we do sin, that God is willing to forgive us. And it says He constantly is cleansing us in the light. And the truth. Now that verse is dealing with our mentality towards sin. And how sin is not above us, nor is it below us. Sin happens to us, and we commit sin. But when we do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2, verse 1 and 2. So, this idea here of being pure is based solely on how pure God is. Not how pure I am or how pure you are, thankfully. It's all about how pure God is as our standard. Second quality here is that of peace. And so true peace comes from above. The very word peace here, peaceable, is the Greek word of irene. You hear the word serenity. Think about tranquility. I hear knocking on the door. A tap, tap, tap. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe there. Anyway. Uh, and so this peace is from above. Now, what's interesting here in John 16, 33, it says that there is in this world tribulation. But be of good cheer or take courage. Why? For greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. John 16, 33. And so, we have this peace here. In Acts 10.36, it says that the apostles, and Peter in particular right here, went about preaching peace of Christ. Now, in, verse, uh, in, this, in this verse, in verse 17, we have the word gentle. How is wisdom gentle? Sometimes, you know, uh, you know, I, maybe I, I was different when I was raised as a child, possible. I'm, I'm an unusual individual. Uh, but when I didn't learn something, I got spanked. Did you ever get spanked when you were a kid because you didn't learn something? Uh, that doesn't seem very, very gentle, does it? <laughs> so how is this wisdom gentle then? Are we dealing with a physical or just more of a figurative thing? Sometimes we say truth hurts, right? Truth hurts. How's it gentle here? I would suggest it means that you are willing to learn about it. That it's willing to teach. Now the truth is black and white, but Ephesians 3 verse 4 says, whereby when you read, you may understand. It is 
teaching us. Titus 2, verse 11, it's teaching us. And so we must be, and that's why you see the word yieldable or entreatable, willing to learn. It's willing to listen, open to reason. And so, true wisdom teaches us to be approachable, not aloof. True wisdom makes us want to see the evidence for what it is and not just take some message word for it. You know, uh, several years ago, for an example on this thing, I was in the uh, in some caves in New Zealand called the Watomo Caves. Uh, beautiful caves. But inside of these caves, they had stalagmites and stalactites and had a fence. You know, a little chicken wire fits around the cave that you wouldn't touch the slagmites and slagtites. You know, don't touch it, you know. Anyways, you know, I asked the question, uh, you know, how long has this stuff been around? Well, the secular answer is, you know, millions of years. Okay, well, question though is how come this fence, that's man-made fence, new fence, no rust that fence either. No rust that, it's a nice new fence. How is that fence have stalagmite coming off of it then? It's taken 10 million years to get there. Well, <laughs> you know, and so sometimes we can't just take the word for it. Truth makes us approachable. It makes us going toward the evidence. And faith is based on what? According to Hebrews 11, verse 1. Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for and what? Yeah. How interesting. It makes us approachable, right? We can look at the Word of God and look at it in light of our world around us and still figure out that we should not just be clammed up and scared. We should say, what is this world doing in the of Scripture? And so we're beginning to see that in this, uh, this gentleness, willing to yield. And then we see this idea here of being full of mercy. Uh, Nehemiah 9.17 says, But you are a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. In Luke 6.36, go Ron, sorry, go on.
Yeah. Yeah. And, and that verse says, not quarrelsome. Yeah. Be gentle, not quarrelsome. Uh, you know? Yeah. Good point. Good point. Any other points, Fry? Keep on running. Good point. All right. So, next uh, word there is full of mercy. Uh, in Luke 6.36, it says, Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. So, God's people, me and you, should be full of mercy. We should be full of compassion. Now, when you look at uh, the common definition of mercy and grace, we see grace, how would you define grace? Would be what? Unmerited favor. favor. Okay. Getting what you don't deserve. Mercy would be not getting the punishment that you deserve. And so when you look at this idea here of full of mercy... It's not saying that, that it was going to go to heaven. I'm not talking about that. It's talking about how God is presenting us with mercy by giving us the Bible, by giving us His Son. He's presenting us with that slowness, uh, the slack there in 1 Peter 3, 9 and 10. He's showing us that He's not willing and the parish for all to come to repentance. He's showing us the mercy there through the Scripture. He's wanting us to see that, that there is hope and there is light at the end of the tunnel. And then you have uh, the next two things. Without partiality and without hypocrisy. You can combine those into one word and that would be true. Wisdom is true. And so we always should seek Wisdom. It's true in how it acts. It's true in how it behaves. And it's true in that it does not pretend. It's not pretentious of any kind. Now, what's interesting here is James uses another word for uh, this partiality deal. And James 1 verse 8, it uses the word double-minded man. It says the double-minded man is what? He's unstable in all his ways. Truth is not double-minded. It's not unstable in all its ways. It's true. It's always true. So we're beginning to see more of the, the big picture here as well. Now when you look at uh, verse 18, I'm right on time. Uh, someone want to read that for us? James 3 verse 18. Okay? Now, collectively, the fruits there, mentioned this verse of those from verse 17, he's just, it's all one, one theme, one, one mind here. Now, question, why are the ones who make for peace the same ones who can show it? Who can sow it, rather? How do you answer that question? Why are the ones who make for peace the same ones who can sow it? 
You know, there's a beatitude in this thing. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers. Why? For they shall see God. Matthew 5, verse 8. Blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 12 goes into this more in detail here. Uh, But when you look at this peace, you know, when, when you have someone that comes around and that individual is all about peace, Anything you do to try to make it chaotic, they're all about keeping the peace, right? You know, when they're around, they're going to they're gonna be the middle person. They're going to be the one that's going to be an interventionist. They're going to be the one that's going to say, no, uh, let's keep it all just peaceful, and let's be civil about this whole thing. Well, that person, I would assume, also in their own life would be a peaceful person. Don't like conflict. Well, they don't have to, well, they don't have to resolve conflict. Put it that way. Uh, and so, Christians are to be that kind of a person. We're the ones that should make peace, not stir it up. Uh, be the ones to go for unity and not just the union. You know, I had a teacher tell me once in school, uh, you can tie a cat's tail, so you have to throw over a lot post. You have union, but no uni there. I wouldn't suggest doing that. But, uh, you know, we should be ones that are striving to be peaceful uh, and so, this heavenly wisdom teaches us to be that kind of an individual and why we can do it. Okay, uh, my time is officially up now. Uh, are there any other questions or comments really before we sit down in the class? Okay, thanks for letting me be up here again. I appreciate it. Uh, thanks for helping me out with the discussion and everything. Uh, I've enjoyed being back with y'all. And uh, I guess we'll stop here for a moment and get ready for worship here in about 15 minutes or so. Thank you very much.